we saw in the previous year that the way the Gemara works is to teach us how to think, not just to provide information. And that's why it's built on arguments, questions and answers, proofs and disproofs, logical svaris, and then counter-arguments. And it's there to improve our way of thinking. To train us to think in a way similar to the Torah. I want to answer one or two questions which many people wonder about. And that is, how much of Torah Shabbat is built on tradition? How much is built on a transmission of the halacha, of the explanation from one generation to the next? And in what areas is it innovation? Is it a process of chidosh, so to speak, a new novel interpretation, explanation which wasn't there in the generation before? And why is this a question which worries people? Because on the one hand, we know the Torah is transmitted. And every generation should have heard from the teachers that taught them what the halacha is, what the pshat is, how to read, how to understand. So why are there new arguments? Why are there new arguments? Why is there so much unclarity? What did they hear from the door before them? What did people do before? And if we're going to assume that this was something which wasn't thought about before, so that might work for the unusual case, something which maybe wasn't practical previously, or the result of some new technology, some change in the world. But there are also arguments about very basic halachas. And if that's the case, it leaves us wondering, why wasn't this something which had been passed down with the Messiah? For example, there's an argument between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, the order of the parishes of the Tefillin. Now, Klai Yisrael wore Tefillin. What do they do until that stage? Were they wearing Tefillin like Rashi? Or were they wearing Tefillin like Rabbeinu Tam? And if, for argument's sake, they had been wearing Rashi's tefillin, so what room is there for Ravana Tam to innovate a new way to do a mitzvah, which hadn't been done in the past? That's an example, but we can find many other similar examples. There's a long discussion in the Gemara as to identifying the pre-Eitz Hodor, the beautiful fruit which we call the Ashrak. And once again, we were left with the question. Klai Yisrael knew exactly what the Esrog was. We take it every year. So why is there so much discussion and argument in the Gemara in trying to identify what the Esrog is? I think the questions are clear. 
So let's go straight to the principles of Torah Shabalpeh. And when we're talking about Torah Shabalpeh, we're talking about a very broad category. In fact, it would even be better to say we're talking about a number of categories, which all fall under the framework of Torah Shabalpeh, but really they're all very different from each other. The first, let's say, unit within the broader picture of Torah Shabalpeh is a transmission given orally to Moshe Tarsinai. Let's understand. And Hasina, we were given the Torah, the written Torah. And there's no way somebody would be able to understand how to keep a halacha if all he had was the written Torah. For example, we have a mitzvah in the Torah of Tfilin. What does the Torah say? The Torah says, Ukshartem le'ois al yodecho. You should tie them as a sign on your arm. Tie what? And where on your arm? And how is it meant to look? And what's it meant to be made out of? And what's part of the sign? Nowhere in the Pasuk, Ukshartem le'ois al yodecho, you see anything about writing pages on parchment, putting them in a box made out of animal hide, making it a square, painting it black, using a strap to attach it to the muscle of the Ha'aparam. Where do we see all these halachas? And then these aren't dinim derabonin. This is the din deraisa. When the Torah says wear tefillin, the tefillin the Torah is referring to is the tefillin we're wearing. Where do you see that in the Torah? Another example. The Torah says, if you want to eat meat, you have to shecht it, you have to slaughter it, like I commanded you. And we can read the Torah, and we don't find anywhere in the Torah the dilim of shechita. How we meant to shecht? Using what implement? And all the dilim which make a difference to whether the animal is considered shechted or is considered an avela, a dead animal without shechita. We can't hesitate. One can't deviate, so to speak, from the line of the Shechita. Hagrama, a person can't go out the area where the Shechita is meant to be. A person can't detach the Simonim. These aren't brought in the Torah. So what does the Torah mean when the Torah is said, I commanded you? Another example. Shabbos. What the Torah says about Shabbos is, Leitase kol melacha. Don't do any form of work because if you do do a form of work, you have misa. So the Torah doesn't just warn us, the Torah threatens us that if we would do work on Shabbos, we'd be have misa for that. And the obvious question what work are we talking about? What's called work? What's called the melacha? And that's not brought in the Torah. Ever. The Torah just says, don't do melacha. And therefore, we could elaborate, we could bring many, many more examples from many, many more mitzvahs. But what we see from all of these examples is that the Torah Shabbat in other words, the written Torah, is not enough on its own. And therefore, 
when the Torah was given to Moshe, it had to have come with more information, more explanation, so that the Jewish people knew what to do. That body of information, which was not written in the Torah, but was given part and parcel of the Torah, is called the first level of Torah Shabal Peh. The Torah which was given to Moshe, but it was given orally. It wasn't written. Why wasn't it written? There's a Chazal in the Pasuk in Kisisa. That the Pasuk says, Ksav Write these things, Hashem says to Moshe, which I'm telling you to write. Because on the words of these things, I have made a covenant with you. So we see two things. There's a Torah which has to be written. And the Torah which is which is based on the mouth, on the speaking of these things. So when the Torah was given to Moshe, it was separated into the area which was written and the area which was said. And says the Midrash, Moshe asked Hashem, why don't we write that part of Torah too? Why don't we write that Torah Shabal Peh? And Hashem answered him, because in the future, there are going to be those who come and claim the Torah as their own. They're going to try and steal the Torah from us and claim it was theirs. And what's the proof that they're wrong? That they might be able to take the scroll of the Torah and translate it into any other language. But without the oral explanation, they will have no idea what to do. And therefore, it's only on the words that I've said that's where I make a covenant with you. Because that part of the Torah remains exclusively the province of Klai Yisrael. That can't be taken away from us. And therefore, there was a reason why not everything was written. That original Torah, that original body of information which was taught to Moshe, what was written just is what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah of Tfilin, a mitzvah of Shechita, a mitzvah of Shabbos. But the details of what to do was not written. It was transmitted already. What we call Halacha L'Moshe Misinai. The Halacha which was given to Moshe Harsinai as the way to Mekayim the Torah. Now, the status of these Halachas are Midaraisa. It was instructed from Hashem to Moshe as the way to Mekayim the Mitzvah. Not the Rabbanon. If a person does Boirer on Shabbos, or Bishol, or Kosev, or Boine, or any of the other Menachos of Shabbos, he's Chayv Midaraisa. That's a Torah prohibition. That doesn't become Rabbinic. What was transmitted from what Hashem told Moshe and given Midar Ladar remains a Daraisa. Rambam writes in Sakdamu to the Mishnah that we won't find, we will never find arguments about a halakha of Moshe Misina. Everyone understood this was the transmission, this was the Messiah, and there's nothing to argue about.
It was given me dar to dar. Every generation saw what the generation before them did. So where then are the arguments on this level of Torah Shabbat? One of two things. One of two ways. The first is sometimes the Gemara knows and understands what the transmission was. But the Gemara looks to find a remez, an illusion in the words of the Pasuk to remind us or to show us the seaside. So yes, we know the tradition. We know what was said. But now we're going to see, can we find a remez for it? A hint for it in the Torah too. And then the Tanaim can argue about, can discuss what do we see in the Pasuk which would, so to speak, allude to this, this prat in the halacha. This detail of the halacha. So when it comes to the esrog, no one argued what the esrog was. There were no tanaim shaking peppercorns or uh, anything else in space of an esrog. What the Gemara is looking to find is, is there a remez in the words priets hodor? Why it has to be specifically the esrog? Well, no, the Torah doesn't define it at all. It just calls it a beautiful fruit. And the identity of that fruit as being the esrog is completely midrabon. I mean, sorry, completely halach la Completely Torah And therefore the Gemara wants to say, maybe it's a fruit which is hador, it lives on the tree the whole year. Maybe it's a fruit which the taste of the fruit and the tree are the same. Those are looking for allusions in the Pasuk so to speak, to show us what was transmitted to us as Torah Shabbat. And same thing, when it comes to the Melachas of Shabbos, we don't find arguments what the Melachas are. We find arguments maybe on how to count them. Is something incorporated as a different Melachas or is it a Melachas of its own? But no one said Boyer is not a Melachas on Shabbos. No one said you can cook. That was transmitted and that was unanimous. And it's always like that. Things which we have a Messiah Midar Dar, we can argue about the Limudim. If there's a remez to it, if there's a way to learn it from the Pasuk, some allusion to it in the words or in the letters, but not about the existence of the item itself. That's the first example. The second times when we find factual arguments between the Tanaim or the Amaraim. So let's just give the example we brought before of Tfilin. Rashi's Tfilin, Rabbeinu Tam's Tfilin as being two different ways of the order of the parishes. And we asked the question, what was done before that? When we learn the Arizal on, on Tfilin, we see an amazing thing. The Arizal writes that there are two ways to write it, to put the order of the person in Tfilin. The Arizal writes that really a person is mechiv in both of them. He's mechiv in the order of Rashi and in the order of Rabbeinu Tam, which is why the Arizal holds a person should wear two pairs of Tfilin. And he brings rise from this from the Zayar, which is already the time of the Tanoim. And therefore, neither Rashi nor Rabbeinu Tam came to innovate, 
came to invent a new order for Tulin, which wasn't extant before. The argument between them is which is the Ma'akev? If a person has one pair of Tfilin, which one is the one which is more important? The one he has to do. But the fact that there are two options to Tfilin, and this was already around in the time of Chazat, in the time of the Tanoim, that's not the argument. Out of those two, which ideally says Arizal person is meant to wear both, which is the one which is the primary Chiyuf? Which one is the one which is Ma'akev? So once again, we can see arguments. There aren't new arguments. We see sometimes in the Torah this. We see that sometimes Rashi explains the Pasuk a certain way. And when we look in the Midrash, we find that it's really an argument in the Talim how to explain the Pasuk. Wasn't Rashi aware of that? Of course he was. But out of the t- opinions he knew about, Rashi chose one of the ways to explain. Either he felt it was an easy interpretation into the Pasuk, or that was the point that Rashi was trying to convey, whatever his reason may have been. He didn't come to Mechadish something new. Within the examples, which were, within the ways to understand which were already there, he picked a certain way as being the way he wanted to work with as well. And the same thing applies to Halakh. There were many times when we find the same arguments in a later generation had already been argued for generations before that. Which means there were two approaches. There were two approaches. And the later authority basically was deciding which of the first authorities to hold like? But now we can ask another question. Where did Machlokas originate from? If everything was transmitted, there should never be a Machlokas. The Rambam, when he answers this question, he says that we don't find arguments until the students of Hiddle and Shammai. And why did they have so many arguments? And why did that become the basis for all the arguments of, of the Tanoim after them. So the Rambam tells us some historical evidence. He says, the generation of the students of Hiddle and Shammai was a generation where Israel suffered persecution. The king Herod hounded the Chachamim, he killed most of them. There was no way to make uh, organized, so to speak, based medrash where students, students could learn. And, and get a clear tradition, Musaira, on every halacha. And as a result of that, there became many areas of un- unclarity. When the students of Hiddle and Shammai didn't have a clear Musaira from their teachers what the halacha was. Because of the persecution, because of the lack of learning. So now many points which had previously been transmitted orally from one generation to the next, now got forgotten, or got confused. And as a result, they began appearing in Klai Israel when there were different opinions. Different opinions because there wasn't somebody to go back to to clarify. Now once again, the arguments are going to be about 
amounts, about what if, about punishments, about the Deavid. Chayashal still knew enough what the Ikah Halacha is. But what about in a different circumstance? What about in the, in the case that they're discussing, which wasn't, let's say, the regular application, then there's room to discuss, then there's room to argue if that wasn't clear. So that's the first explanation for arguments. Now, it didn't just start with Hiddle and Shammai and stop there. This repeated itself many times. Klai Israel has been through many periods of persecution. And in each one, again, the inability to be able to sit and learn and makabil, receive a complete Messiah from the teachers of the, of the generation before is disrupted. And as a result of that, many more things become unclear. And therefore we see that the amount of arguments is ever-expanding. Things the Mishnah never argued about, the Gemara does. Because to the Mishnah there was nothing to argue, it was clear. Points the Gemara never argued about, the Rishonim do. Because in the time of the Gemara there was there was no two opinions, it was clear. And it's like the Pasuk says in Koheles, the Yosef das, Yosef machoiv. More das comes from more pain. Which means, Dafka, the pain the Klaishal experienced, the persecution of Goddess, the expulsions, the interference with their ability to learn, that increases the amount of Torah because as a result of not having Messiah on each point, as a result of not having a clear direction from the Doris beforehand, so now they're going to see more points which aren't clear and therefore are going to be argued. More opinions, more positions. And once again, this relates to Pratim. It doesn't relate to the Klaa. No one's going to argue which day of the week Shabbos is because everybody knows. That's passed down. No one's going to argue about the principle of Malachas and Shabbos. Everybody knows. It's only on the details within that that there can become arguments because the Messiah was passed down with keeping Shabbos but not with every detail in a specific Malach. And then there's room to think what category does this fall into? That's why when we look for proof, we always look back to a previous generation. Because if something is not clear to us, and we can find a reference to it in a previous star, then we've resolved the suffix. We know what they used to do. So when the Gemara has a shaila between the Amaraim, the Gemara is going to look for a proof from the time of the Tanaim, the generation before. Because if we see what the Tanaim does, then we have a Messiah. Then we have a clear direction what to do. And then there will be no room for argument anymore. And same thing in the post-Talmudic period. If there's an argument in the Rishonim, if we can find a raya from the Gemara to one side, to one opinion, then the other one becomes irrelevant. Once we have a Messiah, then there's no room to invent new. And that's always the way Machlokas works. And so in those areas we don't have a Messiah. And why don't we have a Messiah? Why don't we have a Messiah? That was the persecution of Chai That we lost Torah. We lost Torah, but paradoxically we gained the Torah. Because with Dafka through not having an answer to everything, 
that Klayashal, like we said, had to put into practice these principles of learning, of understanding. And yes, it could be that as a result there came out differences of opinion. Now if you're going to still explain how different people could understand the sugya different ways and come out with contradictory opinions, and you're going to still see why that's something which actually Hashem wanted. But when we look to see why, why were they arguing, why wasn't this something that they had a, that they could find out from the Doris before? This is the primary reason. Either it was an argument in the Doris before also, and the students were just continuing, so to speak, the dispute that they had been from the times before. Or it was something which wasn't clear from the previous story what was done. A new case which came up which they didn't have, so to speak, a model for. Or something which they never had an opportunity to ask and therefore was now a question. And the third category, like we spoke before, is there wasn't an argument in practice. It was the argument in understanding. We all agree with the halakha, but what was the reason for the halakha? What was the source for the halakha? And why weren't these things passed down? Why did this have to be argued? So this is the interesting point. I'm talking specifically now about the time of the Gemara, the time of the Tanoim as well. And that is that there's a certain arena of Torah, which is Nimsa from Moshe Misenai. There's a certain area of Torah which was given to the Chachamim to understand on their own. They were allowed to interpret the Torah, whether it was by dorishing extra letters, extra words, Hakesh, Kavachome, whatever it was going to be. And therefore, even though the rules had been given in Moshe Misenai, and the, the, what exactly the parameters of the mitzvah were, were given in Moshe Misenai also, but the, Chach, the Chachamim of the Torah Shabbal Peh, the Tanoim and Amaroim, were given the ability, so to speak, to be Dorish the Torah. And as a result, to come up with their own understanding of how to learn words, and how to learn principles, and how to find their, their allusion to the halachas in the Torah. This is the famous story of Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says in Menachas that Rabbi Moshe Rabbeinu saw Rabbi Akiva being Dorish Kisra Isis. He was learning halachas from the crowns of the letters. And this was something Moshe didn't know how to do. Chalash And he felt inferior. The Torah he got was what Hashem told him. He didn't have this method of analysis of trying to work out halachas from every extra letter or even crown of a letter. Until he saw that what Rabbi Akiva was doing that was coming to halacha of Moshe Misina. It was this method of deduction to see in the Torah, the oral Torah Hashem told Moshe. Moshe didn't need that because Hashem told him directly. But like we said, the principles of Gemara is to be able to use the tools of analysis to understand. So Rabbi Akiva used those tools in order to understand and to come to the reference in the Torah itself for the, oral, the body of oral Torah that Moshe was given. Why was that necessary? Because as long as the Torah was given directly from Hashem, one doesn't have to analyze and try and work out the rule. Like Moshe often did, he asked Hashem and Hashem answered him. But in Torah after that, where the method of Torah study 
is what was needed in order to apply the Torah, like we explained, to new cases. So then there was a, there, it was necessary to try and work out how to analyze Torah. How to analyze Torah. And how to find, so to speak, within the Torah itself, the logic, the svara, one of the rules of the Torah is Nidrash Bahim, where the Torah Shabbat comes from. So let's sum up what we've answered. Why is there a Makkah for Makhlaikas? Wasn't everything Nimsa as a Messiah? Yes. What was Nimsa as a Messiah? Everyone agreed to. After the Makhlaikas is where to see its remez, where to see the hint of that in the Torah itself. There were those cases where they lost the Messiah. That was another argument. When it came to various things in the base of Mikdash, while we don't find that much argument in the Mishnah about what happened in the Beis HaMikdash, which is much nearer in time, and the people who still remember it, we find in the Gemara there are much more points of unclarity. Because it wasn't something they had been living with for a few hundred years. And as a result, there were more points which they didn't have a Messiah on. So there's more points to discuss. What times of persecution? That's the first point. What we're going to discuss in the next year is why, interestingly enough, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants that. He wants the many points of discussion. He wants the clarity which is going to develop different opinions. And we're going to discuss also, Reza Hashem, is how it could be that both these contradictory opinions could simultaneously be correct.